Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You know, when I write, I can only I write about myself, and 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 she she, is, she she it she gets a depression, and and this is more or less a description of you know, you know my my own depression. So uh, so, <clears throat> but 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 somehow I I I see myself in both of the sisters, and uh, and it's kind of you can also. If you choose, see them as one person, two sides of the same person. I, uh, I, I think that's how I write. Welcome to Pick a Flick. I'm Philip Sharman from the Wikishuffle podcast and I'm taking over the hosting duties again. Tony's invited me back very kindly to take the reins of what is going to be a Lars von Trier Pick a Flick special, which is all very exciting. I am joined by Jane Douglas-Jones. Hi there. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. And (laughs) Ruth Bradley. Hello. So we're going to do a Lars von Trier double bill today um but before we get started um a little bit of paperwork don't forget that you can follow pick a flick on all of the reputable podcasting apps and please do give us some feedback on the itunes reviews in particular if you like the show any feedback at all any takes you've got on the films that we discuss then we'd love to hear from you so I wanted to have a chat with Jane first of all and give you the chance to have a chat about the project you're working on at the moment, which is 500daysoffilm.com. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I think last year I kind of felt that I'd... I'd lost my way with film. I really didn't know what to watch. I sort of knew I was missing out on good films. And um, I decided then to really get a bit more strategic and make a list so that when I wanted to watch a film, I knew exactly what I was going to watch and um, to save all that faffing about and scrolling about. And um, as I made my list, 
it just got longer and longer um and i thought that i was going to have hundreds of films before i got too far down the line so then i thought what about um setting myself a challenge so i set myself a challenge to watch 500 films in 500 days which initially seemed very foolish but has just been brilliant and um i've been blogging about it as i've gone along and um yeah i'm really enjoying it fantastic so when did the project start it started back in may last year okay so you're not far away from the one year point no. <laughs> How heavy going has it been? Has there been any times where you thought, why have I got, what have I got myself into here? <laughs> um, at the beginning, I thought, when I sort of said to everybody, this is what I was doing and set up the blog and everything, I then thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? And um, I'll never be, and I can't go on holiday. And oh no, I can't go out. I can't socialize because I've got to watch movies. <laughs> um, but then um, it since then, I've just I've settled down and um and I found that you know it's just it's it's been fine I'm really really enjoying it and now I'm thinking that come September when the 500 days runs out what am I going to do <laughs> <laughs> So what criteria did you set yourself for the films that were going to make it, make it onto the list Um I basically went back about 5 years and um I looked at really the um top film of every week of that five-year period um what sort of had been most um critically acclaimed um and then i made a list of that film um and that was basically to stop myself from watching all films of the same genre to actually push myself to watch different things and you know different genres and so from doing that i've made i've sort of fall in love with world cinema and documentaries and um yeah so that was really the thing was to really sort of experiment a little bit more than than sort of just watching the same old same old really so all 500 are films that you've not seen before um not necessarily some of them i'm re-watching um if that was a film that came out that week that i'd already seen i'm sort of re-watching it again um and since sort of being on this challenge i've also sort of discovered the the joys of sort of um collating films curating them into sort of different lists and and revisiting sort of films i'm at the moment i'm revisiting lots of 80s movies which is just brilliant um and um <laughs> and just sort of making them a list and i think now that i've got a bit more knowledge i think of what i'm watching i'm seeing the different things in those films so uh, not necessarily new ones to me. I'm imagining that this whole project is being held together by a fairly complex spreadsheet. Would that be correct? It would be very good. <laughs> totally correct. <laughs> that sounds really cool. <laughs> That's the yes, bit that it's... appeals to me. Um, <laughs> so what would you say has been the biggest surprise of the films that you've watched so far? Has anything really leapt out at you that you weren't expecting that you take that you really didn't think you'd be into as much as you've found yourself to be i think documentaries i didn't think that i was going to fall in love with documentaries as much as i have i just now i just want to watch every documentary that comes out and i was never really really that interested in documentaries before so that has been a real real eye-opener and i'm um you know just loving the storytelling that um the documentary genre sort of offers um so that i think that and world cinema because i was just so lazy that I would really kind of not watch um, something with subtitles and now I think back at it and I think oh goodness you were so ridiculous um but um now I, I mean I just love I, mean, I love everything so I think that's that's the great thing I've really sort of 
open my mind to just everything, um, which is what I'm really loving about it. Great. And on the other end of the spectrum, what's the worst film that you've watched so far? Oh, gosh. Oh, am I allowed to say? <laughs> yeah, of course you um... are. That's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> name um, and shame. Name and shame. Is there anything well, you've not been oh. able to get to the end of? Uh, no, I'm forcing myself to watch everything through right to the bitter end. And I, I think the the one that I really did not like, and because I'm choosing, I'm, I'm sort of cherry picking the good stuff, so I'm not really watching anything really terrible. But I did go and see Pan last year, Ooh, and I think yeah, yeah. actually that was, yeah. that made me a little angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that wasn't a good film. I watched it with my daughter, so luckily that's there was at least that. Yes, that that's she, a, yes. she was delighted, but we were definitely not delighted. The adults, not yes, at all. No, me the same. I was like, I walked home with my son and my daughter, and I told them why they just watched a bad film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think that might be the the worst one, which is a shame. But um, yeah, I think so. But as bad films go, that's definitely not the worst film in the world. So that's quite good if you obviously are choosing a good calibre of film if that's the worst one. Because it, is, it isn't great at all, but it's definitely, I've seen a lot worse. Oh, yes, definitely. I think that's why this, you could say that this isn't a particular challenge. <laughs> because yeah. all these films are, are really, you know, the ones I'm you know, watching are, well, they're, they're, they're really kind of, you know, none of them are bad films um no, if i haven't no. liked them it's just been a personal thing rather than a you know i've admired some and and, and appreciated some and not enjoyed them but yeah that's yeah so i feel like i'm maybe a bit of a fraud because it's not much of a challenge <laughs> it's a big commitment though it's a very big commitment have you ever missed days yes i thought when i started out i thought that i was although it was going to be 500 days of film it was going to be watching 500 days within that five sorry, 500 films within that 500 days. Um, uh. So not necessarily one every single day. So some days I'll go and watch three and then I'll have some time off. Um, I was just, <laughs> it was more because I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, what happens when we go on holiday? <laughs> exactly. And, and having children as well, you never know. You don't, I mean, I rarely get time because my daughter's older now and she stays up in the evening to watch films because yes. there's always somebody around who's not old enough to watch them. So it's like, oh. Yeah, yes. it would be a big commitment. <laughs> yes, it's it's working fine, but I think I yeah I'm I'm, I'm the same. I sort of um, yeah I'm like oh no, let me yeah, go to bed now because I need to yeah. <laughs> need have to got a job to do. <laughs> yes. So yes, tell so. us some more about where we can find your list of films and your findings so far. Um, well, you you are very welcome to come over to five hundred days of film dot com and um, on Twitter at five hundred days of film. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I was having a look through the, the website myself earlier today and there's some good stuff on there. So, um, yeah, oh, thank well you. worth a, a troll. But let's get back onto the task at hand, which is pick a flick. And Jane, you've actually picked the first flick for yes. this week. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about your reasons behind picking? I should um, disclose what we're talking about. We are going to be talking about the film Melancholia by Lars von Trier. Before we get into too much detail, do you want to tell us what your reasons were for suggesting this as a film that might interest people? Um, I think I suggested it um, because this is my first Lars von Trier film that I'd watched and um, 
I didn't know what to expect and it really blew me away for lots of different reasons um, and it really affected me um, and I thought it was just really interesting, um, visually stunning and um, yeah, I just really thought, I thought it was something definitely that would um, provoke debate and, and um, would be good for a good chat. Okay, let's start off with a brief introduction. Melancholia is a 2011 Danish art drama film written and directed by Lars von Trier and starring Kirsten Dunst, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Alexander Skarsgård, Cameron Spur and Kiefer Sutherland. The film's story revolves around two sisters, one of whom is preparing to marry as a rogue planet is about to collide with Earth. Von Trier's initial inspiration for the film came from a depressive episode he suffered and the insight that depressed people have a tendency to remain peaceful during catastrophic events. The film is a Danish production by Zentropa with international co-producers in Sweden, France and Germany. Filming took place in Sweden. We're sorry. I won't even bother saying how late you are. So sorry, oh, guys. Sorry. Really sorry. Uh, okay. Hi, Claire. So sorry. Hi. Probably taking something smaller. Huh? Whose brilliant idea was it to rent a stretch? This is very much not my project. Okay. I spent the whole week with the dullest man on earth. Not to mention the most expensive wedding planner on the planet. Okay, so you you want this? Yeah, of course. We're only there, mm -hmm. and it, that was two hours ago. Okay. All right, let's do this. What star is that? I don't know. John, you're a bit of an expert on stars, aren't you? Well, I wouldn't say that. Oh, yes, you would. Which one are you looking at exactly? The red one. I'm amazed that you can see that. That's Antares. It's the main star in the Scorpio constellation. So, I rewatched the film. I saw it for the first time about a year ago. Um, and very much enjoyed it. Uh, I've been a, a fan of Lars von Trier's films for, for quite some time now. This one, as with most of his work, is not the easiest of watches and takes quite a bit of um, dedication, shall we say, to, to, to really get in, involved in the film. It's set into two distinct parts, part one, which is called Justine, and part two, which is called Claire. The first part taking place during or just after the wedding of Kristen Dunst, uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, and the, the second um, concerning itself with the, the weeks following that period. So the first part of the film um, relating to the wedding that's just happened between um, Kirsten Dunst and what's his name? Skarsgård, I've forgotten his first name. Alexander. Alexander. <laughs> What did you make of the of that section, Ruth? I absolutely loved the first half of the film. It's I preferred it to the second half of the film. Probably I found it more personally relatable, having, you know, sort of um, had depression in my personal family and sort of been around that and 
and feeling that way potentially so um i found it just like a beautiful depiction of of what is seemingly a sort of nervous breakdown before our eyes and it's uh, i just think it's fantastic uh, the way kirsten Dunst's character is portrayed and the pressures that she's under and and how um she's constantly trying to sort of romanticize and escape from the pressures of life because maybe her coping mechanism with it is is not good and um and then also meeting her parents and seeing the sort of the lightness of her father and the darkness of her mother and how the collision of genetics has sort of probably produced these two very complex and very different children in Justine and I've forgotten Charlotte Gainsbourg's character's Claire, name. Claire. Claire. Yeah. yeah, and I just thought it was so interesting and then seeing Kirsten Dunst's character Justine sort of you know, being pressured and, and the way that Von Trier has laboured these pressures with the advertising um, person, like, constantly badgering her. I mean, there's nothing more sort of pressurising than an advertising deadline, a stuffy wedding, and um, it's just all, and, like, the you know, the pressures of the first night with her husband, and I just think it's a wonderful depiction of someone's just refusal and detachment from reality um, in that sort of situation. I think that detachment from reality is a very big part of the way that the film opens in so much that it's set in an, this otherworldly location. The entire film set on in this big estate, which we're never quite clear exactly where it is, but it's implied that it's um, it was only shot in Sweden and it implies that it's somewhere European, but it's not... Uh, an instantly relatable setting. This isn't a kitchen sink drama that we're watching here. This isn't um, something that's very familiar to the audience. It's a very fantastical, uh, surely if you're being allowed to live this kind of life with this kind of wealth, then surely everything should be happy. That's the, as a, a stark comparison to when things very clearly aren't happy and the more relatable emotional side of things, but that is very contrasted against this opulence and sort of really rich lifestyle that they've, that they're lucky enough to, to live through. And I think it's interesting the way the different characters sort of respond to the bourgeois nature, that obviously there's a comment on that definitely, where some of the characters, are, Kiefer Sutherland's characters, are very much about the wealth, and then you've got the arrogance of the advertising man, and then the mother's complete refusal of what she calls like your rituals of the wedding and all this nonsense. I think that's a really interesting sort of comment on that lifestyle and how yeah just because you do have wealth it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's okay at all jane what were your first impressions as the as because obviously you went to it with not that many preconceptions it being your first Lars von Trier film um how did you think as it started up i think when it first started i was just stunned by how um operatic and painterly everything looked on a on a purely visual um level to begin with i was just you know amazed at what i was seeing and um i just loved it i thought the music the the um the use of slow motion the way he does where you just are watching something that looks completely still and then you see um like a, a flag just waving or the um the the actors just moving very very slowly and the atmosphere that that um generated with within me i was just 
I yeah, was really gripped from the very start. Um, and then you obviously have the sort of the start of the film spoils the end of the film um, with the sort of very initial moments um, and um, sort of showing us that it's it, that you know there, there's this planet melancholia coming towards the earth um, and I thought that was just really interesting and I think um, that idea of, of, of sort of of us knowing what is going to happen in the end uh, right from the start is really interesting because then you're really focused on this sort of very short period of time around the wedding and shortly after that um, and um, I, I was really you know in, interested in how you have that big grand operatic start and then you go to something that's that should be or feels slightly darkly comic with the um, a limousine trying to get round the small corners um, on the way up to the reception, um, which should feel um, like the start of something, the start of something happy, and all the time you feel there's something not right, um, and because they're, they're so late, aren't they? And um, and um, I was I was really gripped, um, and I think like Ruth, I really enjoyed that first section, that that sort of um, part where everything for um, Justine starts to as soon as her mum sort of steps up and sort of says enjoy this enjoy it while it lasts and then I think it really unlocks sort of something that she's trying to hold back and everything starts to slow down for her and she can't get herself going again and I think it's just it was so poignant to see that because you really you really felt it as well as you was you as sort of seeing the story unfold really felt her trying to be happy and trying to be like quotes normal and um, have a normal life but battling that very overwhelming sense that there's just there's just no point and and you know that real sort of sense of depression that she has and um I yeah I was just yeah really completely gripped yeah going back to the the introduction you talked about there for the first I think it's ten and a half minutes of the film there's not a single word of dialogue and it basically runs out the entire plot of the film through unrealistic visual representations in very slow motion, very dreamlike um, sequences. From a review and discussion point of view, that's absolutely fantastic because it means that we don't have to worry about spoilers because it's all there in the first 10 minutes, uh, <laughs> which is which is great. So we know that there is a planet that is on its way to intercept with, with Earth. There is an inevitability about what we're seeing unfold in front of us, which is part of the point that it's trying to make, I think. Um, and in that opening scene, um, the... The, just the the way that the super slow motion and the incredible high definition is used is properly taking advantage of modern cinematic potential in a way that I think Lars von Trier has been capable of doing throughout a, a lot of his career. And that certainly makes it feel very up-to-date and very cutting edge. Which is interesting when you think about what we're going to talk about later, the uh, his uh, dogma manifesto, which was very much against these um, sort of bourgeois techniques and the director being very... Absolutely. Um, sort of, so that's very, very interesting, and maybe we'll talk about that later as well. Talking about the introduction, what I found so sort of poignant, and especially when you look back on it, 
was just how um, perfectly foreboding and inevitability of it all um, is just the inevitability of it all rather is just um, it's so well placed and it's so well placed within the theme of depression which it is within a trilogy of films that Von Trier made about depression and obviously having suffered himself I think he just hits the nail on the head and Kirsten Dunst's character and so by showing us the end at the beginning it's it's just um, sealing that thought that thought that that uh, the um, sorry the character Kirsten Dunst's character has of you know there will be an end it's all coming to an end it's it's inevitable it's going to happen and so we may as well just embrace that yes you know rather than fight against it which um, her sister does her sister refuses to acknowledge this and she refuses to accept that it's okay. And she's on the other end of the spectrum from Kirsten Dunst's character, who I've forgotten. Justine, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Terrible with names. Do you do you ever feel do you, when you were watching it that um, they were almost like the two sides of of a person, perhaps like the one side of of sort of accepting that there's no point um, and that everything will come to an end, and um, and then the other sort of side of perhaps being very anxious to sort of try and carry on as normal or or have when you know you know, have that sort of moment where she's sort of trying to sort of have drinks on the veranda when <laughs> when yeah. um you, you know everything's gonna end and you think you know whether or not they're kind of the two two sides of, of a person of a person's character yeah I, I do agree with that as well and also I I think um that if you take the sort of uh, reality of the planets colliding and sort of take that as a metaphor, it's almost showing sort of how much depression in a family can just destroy a family and how, you know, her inevitable demise is going to affect the young uh, nephew and is going to affect her sister deeply. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be accepting of it. And they will, you know, rage hard against the dying of the light as... Um, her sister does right to the very end she's you know really sort of distressed that this is going to be the end whereas obviously Justine is more sort of oh thank goodness you know well I knew it was coming and isn't this beautiful the way it's happening because she Justine gets quite a lot calmer doesn't she as soon as she realizes that everything's ending whereas Claire becomes increasingly anxious and um I, yeah, desperate I think, yeah yeah and I, I did think obviously sort of Claire has her son to sort of think about but um I, I was just it, it was just really interesting sort of seeing the two of them um and and I, I so agree with you and and also that idea where you know if you're fe- you know where depression doesn't feel like something that's happening to the person it's happening to everybody involved mm. and, and that person can feel like the whole world is 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 depressed and the whole world is turning um dark and and and, and pointless and um that, and the know, whole world is ending as yeah. it were you know i mean depression can be so all-consuming that there is no hope at all so it would potentially feel like you know the whole world is going to implode and that's what it would do to the family if she, you know, her breakdown is just becoming increasingly difficult. I mean, when you see her in the second half, um, sort of trying to get her into the bathtub and she literally can't lift her feet up and, you know, her, her world is completely ending. And then once she sees her the end, you know, she doesn't have to try anymore because the world's going to end for her. She doesn't have to end the world 
to get away from her pain. I think it's very interesting seeing how, you know, lighter she becomes and how she's just enjoying the small things like the jam and yes, yeah, yeah. And she kind of draws. She wants to almost draw. Wants to draw melancholia in, doesn't she? I wondered if you know you felt that it was, it was her, almost sort of beckoning this this planet that kind of you know means it doesn't do a flyby or. Um, oh, that, that's an interesting concept. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, there is an element of that, isn't it? Um, on on rewatch, and this was my my second watch of the film. I definitely found the the metaphors for depression um, a lot more blatant than I did on the first watch. On the first watch, it was like, oh yeah, this is all about how it is to to feel out of control and feel depressed. I understand it's getting there. Whereas on the second watch, it felt as if it was really wearing that on its sleeve, um, and that some of it was really bordering on the heavy handed. Certainly, sort of naming the planet melancholia. That's not that's not a subtlety. There's a there's a section in the the opening sequence that we talked about where um, Kirsten Dunst's character is sort of wading through um, the the walking along grass and the grass is kind of swallowing her up. And it, it's the grey wool. She refers to it later. She says it feels like I'm being pulled, and the grey I think she calls it the grey yarn is dragging her back. And yeah. She's trudging. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's it's not done subtly. It's done very beautifully, and it's done very caringly. So it gets away with it, um, and I think it's effective for that. But it very much stakes its claim very early on about this is a film about depression, and this is all this film is about. And I think that that's a, a very noticeable thing. And what you've effectively are showing is that pretty much every single character in the film is exhibiting signs of depression in various ways of coping. Yeah, and it's the coping mechanisms, I think, that are interesting. And even Kiefer Sutherland's character, who seems quite... Um, you know, quite one side, one dimensional, as it were, all the way through the film. And then for him to take the tablets at the end was almost a sort of a, a sign of like he couldn't cope with his own failure, maybe, or that he was a coward. And, you know, there was that was really interesting as well, because that was quite unexpected. Absolutely. I thought the Keeper Sutherland is absolutely fantastic in this film. I mean, as much mm, as the, yeah. the, the two women are, are, are brilliant in the, the lead role, the joint lead roles that they've got there, I thought Keeper Sutherland gave a better performance than I can remember seeing him do ever, really, in this kind of put upon man who needs to express his worth and his value but doesn't really know how and has got this kind of suppressed anger that he can't deal with properly which again is symptomatic of him being unhappy with his situation it's really interesting because um i was also really impressed by his performance and 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 for him to have that particular role where he is quite cowardly and um not particularly attractive and not the sort of the hero that saves the day at the end at mm, all not jack bauer <laughs> yes um and um i i sort of was interested and i sort of read an interview with him where he said that this um role and the experience with working with von trier kind of made him deconstruct everything he'd learnt um f- from all of his films and all of 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. His television um, work and, and really go back to almost square one and um, because Von Trier wouldn't let them block or rehearse or everything had to be um, very loose and very sort of um, he, he couldn't think about his process he had to just be in the moment and I thought that really did bring out a, a really impressive performance from him. Yeah you, you read a lot I've read a lot of stories about um, actors different takes on working with Von Trier and <laughs> by all accounts it sounds like a very intense um, very sort of artistically um, developing time for all of the actors involved. Um, most notably was Bjork um, when she was in Dancing in the Dark. She had a near nervous breakdown after working mm-hmm. with him on that and swore she'd never do a film again because it was just such an intense, emotional, you know, pure method and way of working. I think, yeah, it must be extremely different, you know, working with an avant-garde um, director than doing sort of like say with uh, Kiva Sutherland doing 24 yeah. you know that must have been such a completely different working environment it must be I mean so I think I think some some actors seem to sort of get on better than others don't they because this mm-hmm. um, this interview with them um, and also um, I was um, sort of thinking that Alexander Skarsgård was also very relaxed and um, talking about the experience in a in a very kind of um um, accepting way and that it had been a really positive you know working experience and a real really amazing experience working with him but I know that there's been other actors that have <laughs> found that to be quite the case but um, yeah he's certainly a character isn't he um, Mr Von Trier yes. and I think <laughs> that that segues nicely into us talking about the more general um, scope of his work and there is certainly a recurrent theme of handling these difficult subjects and really making his actors work for it. Uh, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah. 
Definitely. Jane, you said that uh, Melancholia was your first Lars von Trier film. Has it made you search out any more? Definitely. Um, with some trepidation, actually. But, um, <laughs> yes. That's, that's how, how have you found that? <laughs> um, well, um, I watched uh, Antichrist. And, oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> and I've also watched the uh, both volumes of Nymphomania. Um, and um, I was so pleased that I watched Antichrist actually because um, all of the press reports um, about the film had really put me off which is ridiculous because I'm all for you know making my own mind up about a film Um, and um, obviously it has its um, more controversial moments and I can understand why (laughs) it did cause some cause a stir but I just thought it was uh, an an amazing film about um, dealing with guilt and grief and I really did. I thought, you know, almost a, such a shame that the sort of the stir, the media storm that surrounds him, um, and a lot of the time I think, you know, he doesn't really help himself with that, um, with some of the things he said. But, um, you know, it's a shame because the, the sort of the films are amazing and they are, they deal with such interesting ideas and play with such interesting ideas. And, um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I'm really pleased that I've sort of, you know, um, have watched some more of his films, um, having sort of just really been such a recent um, convert. So yeah, I found I thought Antichrist was probably most similar to Melancholia in its sort of sumptuousness and nature and the painterly um, sort of you know what am I trying to say the um, dreamlike nature of it. So I really liked Antichrist as well, and and there's some moments in there that have really stuck with me. I remember you know, certain scenes, um, not the controversial ones, just, um, you know, just general ones that have really stuck with me and just, I thought were just so, you know, thought provoking. But yeah, I remember at the time, a lot of people watching it and not really not liking it and just not, not understanding why and just seeing it as sort of more as a sort of shock tactic. But if you look past that, then I think it's a beautiful film. To be fair, to be fair to those audiences that were upset by it, it was marketed completely inaccurately. It was basically treated like a slasher horror film upon release, which was not an accurate depiction of what Antichrist is. Um, So yeah, you can understand why people felt misled when they thought that they were getting a a new version of The Exorcist, effectively. Mm, And it being called Antichrist, and then there was quite gratuitous sex scenes in there as well. So yeah, it kind of was destined to sort of fall into that category a little bit, or a lot. (laughs) We've had um, through Twitter some general takes on uh, what people's opinions are of Lars von Trier and his work. Uh, Maya Brooker has said, for me, confusing and therefore a little overrated. That was speaking specifically about um, melancholia. Uh, Elizabeth Vig says, brilliant and non-conventional. Kevin White uh, can be hit and miss, but Dancer in the Dark and Dogville are both wonderful, which brings me on to what I think is the absolute peak of um, Lars von Trier's work, and that's Dogville, um, which I absolutely adore. It's the 2003 film with Nicole Kidman. Um, which is basically all just filmed on a soundstage with no no sets to speak of at all, but everyone treating as if everything that's happening is in the real world in, I want to say, 1920s America. But I'm not it seems that way. Sure. I think it's definitely that sort of era. I love the fact that as well it's 
it's almost, especially with the name being Dogville, it's, it's almost a direct sort of antithesis of the dogma um, manifesto in that it, it is completely the other end of the scale entirely. It's almost a sort of, well, actually, this would be that on the opposite, you know, it's complete indulgence. You absolutely have to suspend your disbelief. You absolutely have to imagine the set you know it's definitely you know there is lighting you know there it is staged it's in a different time it's it's i do wonder whether he did that on purpose i don't know i haven't read up about it but i'm i'm sure he did in a in a deliberately um confrontational way Uh, but that does lead nicely on to dogma 95 which is why what sort of made him famous around the world for bringing out this vision Um, i'll read a little bit about it dogma 95 was an avant-garde filmmaking movement started in 1995 by danish directors lars von trier and thomas vinterberg who created the dogma 95 manifesto and the vow of chastity These were rules to create filmmaking based on the traditional values of story, acting and theme and excluding the use of elaborate special effects or technology. It was an attempt to take back power for the director as artist as opposed to the studio. They were later joined by fellow Danish directors Christian Levering and Soren Krag Jakobsen, forming the Dogma 95 Collective or the Dogma Brethren. So if we look specifically at the rules that were outlined, because it's, it's fairly famous, but I have to admit, I don't know that I'd actually read all the rules before, although I was aware that they existed and knew the principles. Um, the rules themselves, there's only nine of them. Well, number one, shooting must be done on location. Props and sets must not be brought in. If a particular prop is necessary for the story, a location must be chosen where this prop is found. Number two, the sound must never be produced apart from the images or vice versa. Brackets, music must not be used unless it occurs within the scene where it's being shot. The camera must be handheld. Any movement or immobility attainable in the hand is permitted. The film must be in colour. Special lighting is not acceptable. If there is too little light for exposure, the scene must be cut or a single lamp be attached to the camera. Optical work and filters are forbidden. Temporal and geographical alienation are forbidden. That is to say that the film takes place here and now. Genre movies are not acceptable, which is certainly the vaguest of the rules. Uh, Number number eight, the film format must be Academy 35mm. And number nine, the director must not be credited, which is a weird one when you consider that the whole purpose of the the movement was to give the art form back to the director to then distance yourself from it. But the whole thing's very contradictory and you kind of suspect that it was done for a reason of courting controversy and making a story and uh, intellectualizing the process of film that they were making rather than being a strict set of rules that were there for any uh, anything other than arbitrary purposes no i mean there's nothing more romantic really is it as an artist than to try and create a movement i think so yes. i think you know, any group of people that come together and and you know purposefully this is our manifesto this is our movement and you know fair play to them it works and you know and it is talked about and it is written about but it's absolutely contrived and you know very sort of grandstanding But I can see the appeal, definitely. And it definitely worked. I mean, we're talking about it it now, 21 years later. So, And if we're talking about it, then, well, it's made it, hasn't it, really? (laughs) (laughs) I think think actually another good indicator of that is Harmony Corinne making a dogma film. I think if Harmony Corinne was involved, then it absolutely would be a sort of a very trendy in avant-garde 
you know, movement. And I think, you know... Which is exactly what they were going for. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, as tied up as Lars von Trier is with the notion of the, the dogma movement, he only made the one dogma film, which was The Idiots in 1990. Um. <laughs> That's actually my favourite von Trier film. And the first one that I watched back in 1990, Blur, when it came out, <laughs> I can't remember when it was either. I, you'll have to uh, Google that one, Phil. But um, I remember watching that. My brother um, was at film school at the time and sort of I think he probably would have been introduced me to this dogma you know sort of idea and so I watched it and I just thought it was the best thing ever I thought it was you know really funny really interesting and just great I thought it was brilliant I haven't seen it recently so that's definitely one that I think I'm going to rewatch again soon to see how I feel about it now I'm not a teenager um yeah 1998 the idiots was which is um Later than I thought, actually. I'd assumed it was a little earlier than that. Yeah, which, again, I really enjoyed. But it's good because of the concept and the direction. It's not good because of the rules that it's it's set itself. And as we said, Von Trier himself has completely rejected those rules. Uh, Their very essence in the vast majority of the films that he's made. So it's... I'd be interested to know what his thoughts are of it today as to whether it's still an important ethos because he's obviously rejected it so much or whether he would see that he um, that it was really just a novelty. And whether he saw it as a long-standing thing or just a sort of phase because, I mean, you know, in anybody's artistic growth, you, you do definitely have, or anybody's artistic appreciation, you, you have moments where something's very important to you and then the next year it might be something which is completely contradictory to the way you believed before, but that, yeah. It, it does. It shows his sort of exploration of thought and, and a, you know, an inquisitive mind. Yeah, but he certainly wasn't a young man um, in 1995. He'd have been approaching 40 years old. He'd got a, yeah. a great number of films and very well received films under his belt. So this wasn't him trying to reinvent the wheel without the experience to back it up. So it's it's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I do think it was a, an interesting phase, an interesting you know sort of experiment. Yeah. And again, maybe what you said before about, you know, sort of trying to forge one's own notoriety. I haven't seen any other dogma films apart from uh, Julian Donkey Boy, which was the Harmony Corinne one. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen any more of the I read the list down and realised I hadn't seen any of the others apart from uh, The Idiots and Julian Donkey Boy. Yeah, no, I haven't either. They're the only two I've seen. Oh, I've seen Feston. The first one, but I, I don't remember it very well. No, I haven't. I haven't seen them either. So, um, yeah, maybe I need to go back and have a look. It, it just seems to me strange that someone who's so innovative and visual would, yeah, unless it was maybe just to sort of really, uh, uh, like a, a protest of some sort to sort of re um, invigorate the role of the director, perhaps or yeah, or a sort of reversal of because obviously he is very artistic. He's a very artistic filmmaker and it's very painterly uh, sometimes it's really interesting to see what will happen when you just strip it all back so if you do a painting and you use lots of different media and then you say oh actually I'm just going to be a purist and just use oil paints you know you get a very different result I think it's just setting those scientific parameters and setting it off and just to see what will happen rather mm. than a lifelong man but mm. the way that they went with it and said it's a they called it the sacred vow and you know calling it a manifesto does make it sound like it is a sort of life-changing decision 
but I don't think it was that tall. No, it's just pageantry, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's grandstanding. So, we're now going to go on to pick another flick. And the second film that we're going to be talking about this evening was suggested by The Comic Roast at The Comic Roast on Twitter. And it's another Lars von Trier film, and it's 1991's Europa. I'm intrigued by The Comic Roast being, I don't know who this um, lovely person is, but I do wonder whether they have done this for comedic purposes, knowing that it is probably one of the most hard-to-get-hold-of films. (laughs) In the world, and I think maybe that's why it was suggested as perhaps a, a cruel joke. Uh, yeah, that's a, uh, shall we address that problem first of all? I think we probably should. Um, yeah. Jane, you've not been able to see the film at all because you couldn't get hold of a copy. No, I couldn't. I tried. I um, I I sort of was all was sort of expecting to receive last week a copy of the DVD, and then I got a notification to say no, I wasn't going to be getting that. And um, yeah, I I just couldn't get a hold of it at all no ruth you and i both resorted to more salubrious means of trying to get hold of a copy (laughs) of this um which i personally hate doing um i really don't like streaming films illegally i personally am a very big advocate of always paying for films because i want you know my money to be where my mouth is and to support filmmaking generally unfortunately it simply wasn't possible with this film which is a a sad indictment on the distribution industry because why aren't you taking my money (laughs) it's it's (laughs) a really frustrating thing that i'm here i'm willing to pay i want to see this film there is no way that overheads could be an issue because youtube exists you know hosting hosting video is not a a complicated thing to do anymore it's just that the studios haven't got their asses in gear to properly make available the properties that they Mm. own and that's a major shame i was really surprised that the criterion collection doesn't offer it you know because usually you think well they'll have an online source but there just wasn't no yeah and so yeah i did have to go to um you know, terrible means to watch this film. And it wasn't in the favourable circumstances, even the the copy that we both ended up watching in the end was terrible. I mean, the sound was out of sync. I had to watch it on my laptop, which I'd never normally do. And um, yeah, it generally uh, failed as an experience because there was no German subtitles, well, no English subtitles for any of the German spoken parts, which was, I would say, two thirds of the film. Yeah, that was quite problematic. So, um, (laughs) but at the same time, I did find myself feeling if I had, was watching an official copy, would there be any subtitles or is this something that Von Trier is doing to mess around with us? Because (laughs) it didn't stop me from getting the gist of the film. And given how much of it is about alienation and being confused and um, there being stories that you don't know are going on, part of me thought, well, maybe that's intentional and I'm not supposed to be able to understand the German bits. But I genuinely didn't know. I See, I thought that might be the case if he couldn't understand German very well either. But when the main protagonist, I'm talking about Leopold, but when he was also speaking fluent German as well as speaking English, then I thought, well, this can't be a trick because... If it was about alienation and if it was trying to portray that, you know, that we're in the same boat as him, then he wouldn't be speaking fluent German either. So I had to just kind of just sort of you had to sort of try and use body language 
and try and figure out what was going on. But I, I'm just left with the sense that I, I really enjoyed the film and I found it very, very interesting and thought provoking. But I'm very aware that my connotations from the film may be completely different to what they might be had I seen it with most of the dialogue intact. Yes. So, um, so a brief introduction to the film anyway. Europa, known as Zentropa in North America, is a 1991 Danish art drama film directed by Lars von Trier. It is von Trier's third theatrical feature film and the final film in his Europa trilogy following the element of crime and epidemic. The film features an international cast, including the French-American Jean-Marc Barr, Germans Barbara Sokoa and Udo Kier, expatriate American Eddie Constantine and the Swedes Max von Sydow and Ernst Hugo Jarogard. I probably pronounced that name wrong. Europa was influenced by Franz Kafka's America and the title was chosen as an echo of that novel. And a brief outline of the plot. A young, idealistic American hopes to show some kindness to the German people soon after the end of World War Two. In US, in US occupied Germany, he takes on work as a sleeping car conductor for the Zentropa Railway Network, falls in love with a femme fatale and becomes embroiled in a pro-Nazi terrorist conspiracy. And it would be a lot easier to understand with some English subtitles over the top of it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Saying that. I got a lot from the film. I started out, well, first time I tried to watch it, which was this morning, I watched 15 minutes and then fell asleep for two hours. Um, but I don't know if that was a reflection on the film or that I just had a really big roast dinner. I don't know. So I'm going to, having now watched it all, after really then panicking, having to, have I got even time to watch it before this podcast, um, I managed to fit it in and actually really quite enjoyed it. Um, apart from finding it very frustrating in that I don't feel I got the full story but I thought it was really thought-provoking in um, the the way the film's introduced it's like there's this hypnotic narrator who is almost lulling you it's definitely hypnotism so he sort of brings you in and counts you down into the film and says you're relaxing and you feel the warmth spreading through your body and it's almost like um really sort of brings you into their world it says you're now in the world of Europa and then the film begins and that narrator follows through throughout the film sort of guides you through and I thought that was just wonderful and really sort of made me think about you know thoughts I have often about when you think about World War II and the Nazi regime that what happened what possessed these people you know the whole of Germany well probably not the whole of Germany but you know, this country's society to get so warped. And I think that it's a really good sort of reflection on that and um, the way the train, you know, is travelling through and the you know, the use of the trains in World War Two to transport people. And I just think it's a really brilliant, dreamy sort of look at the madness that was World War Two and how um, the occupation of Germany afterwards... And, you know, how the people would cope with that. You know, how how do you cope with life after the war once you've, you know, the whole world said what you did was completely wrong. Now you must feel shame for, you know, an unknown period of time. And I think this film really makes you feel that sort of despair and yes. anxiety and confusion really about that time. I think starkly opposite to Melancholia, the 
themes of this film were exactly what it looked like it was. It was talking specifically about how a country heals itself and how whether or not showing kindness can work in the face of that. And it was pretty much at face value, whilst at the same time relying very heavily on visuals and motifs that, that weren't realistic at all and doing it really, really effectively. The... Um, voiceover that you talked about, the, the narration, which normally I, I genuinely can't think of another example where the narration is necessary in film. It always feels like a really lazy add-on that is there for exposition purposes that isn't really adding to the film. And yet in this instance, it felt like it was just grounding everything back into distancing yourself a little bit from what was happening and making you look at the bigger picture of these people are confused at what's happened at the end of the war. And mm. it was really quite powerful for that. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I, I wish that I understood a little bit more of what was going on with the relationships, particularly yes. with the with the German characters. Um, some of it was uh, was obviously very easy to tell what was happening, the power struggles and the people trying to forge... Uh, a worth for themselves in this this new regime um, but a lot of it I fear was lost on me which is a real shame and I, I would desperately like to see it again um, and, oh me too and a better quality picture as well because the picture quality was so poor that I felt um, there was a, a technique that was used where a, a lot of the time there was um, back projected images that were being mm. um, displayed at the same time the action was going on and it was really effectively done but I couldn't I couldn't see it well enough to, to really appreciate it, which is Yeah, the... I mean, the filmmaking that went into Europa is just phenomenal. It's almost like this huge sort of homage to filmmaking techniques of the past, you know, it's and, and also literary references, and it's very noir. I mean, there's this perpetual night, you know, it's all very dark, and then the use of the spot colour, yep. you know, which Spielberg references was his inspiration for... Um, What's that film? Schindler's, uh, Schindler's List. List. But it's yeah. done so much better than Schindler's List, I think. Um, it's oh, really do you? See, I, I think it's less obvious, but I think it, it feels, especially in the beginning of the film, I found it a bit confusing because it seems a little arbitrary. But then, yes, by the end of the film, it does seem to sort of make sense. Yeah, well, I, I felt the problem with the use of the same technique in Schindler's List was completely the opposite, is that it wasn't arbitrary enough. It was too on the nose, whereas... Yeah, it was a bit obvious. Uh, yeah. It wasn't very artistically done, was it? It was, it was very... But, I mean, it, was, it worked. It was very impactful. But I know what you mean. It didn't seem as interesting... Yes. ...as uh, the way um, Von Trier did it. And... Um, yeah, I just I just really liked it, and um, this I found it quite traumatic to watch as well. And that disillusionment. One thing I found really interesting was the uh, the use of the train set, and um, when the uh, the femme fatale lady I can't remember her name, um, she um, his who ten, who ends up being his wife, who's sort of then he's almost puppeteering him, it would seem. And when she talks about the train set and that, he just thought. It was a big train set. Uh, Zentropa was actually a train company that they owned. And that was really interesting because you can imagine almost in politics, people moving pieces around a table and, you know, making these huge plays uh, that affect people's lives. I mean, you know, if you take, you know, the whole Nazi regime came from one man, which is, you know, Hitler. And that was just sort of like a theory that that he had that got taken well out of 
you know, it just has these huge ramifications when actually it's just one person or a few people potentially pulling strings and how um, I think the film really gave me that sense of, you know, the theory that we're all puppet, we're all um, pieces in somebody else's game, Mm -hmm. basically. I thought it was a really good sort of musing on that, which is horrible and, yeah, it is quite uh, terrifying. Yes. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there because um, obviously we can't give a full insight. I would urge anyone to give it a try, and if they can get hold of a copy, um, then please lend it to me. Send it to me. <laughs> yes, and me. I really want to see it now. <laughs> um, one thing that I, I will say, an interesting tidbit that I learned about the film: the film won three Academy Awards, uh, sorry, three awards at the 1991 Cannes Film Festival, uh, which was Best Artistic Contribution, the Jewelry Prize, and the Technical Grand Prize. Upon realising that he had not won the Palm Door, Von Trier yeah. gave the judges the finger and stormed out of the venue. Brilliant. <laughs> I think that's um, quite telling about the sort of man that he is. So he'd already won three very significant awards, but by not getting the Palm Door, he stormed off in a half and gave him the, them the finger on the way out. Yeah, fair play. <laughs> that, that's how I'm going to leave this podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> which leads in nicely to a couple of other tweets that we've had speaking about Lars von Trier. Uh, Just a Dame at Garbo tweets says brilliant and underrated. And the, the final word from Dino Leone at Alderbaran, and I think this sums up the whole situation perfectly. Overrated, well, no, I don't, sorry, I disagree with him, but the second part of this point I, I agree with. He says overrated, but he wouldn't give a stuff what people think of him. And that part, definitely is true the overrated part i don't agree with because i think that um his body of work is really fantastic and if you've not seen anything i would i would urge you to go back and have a, another look definitely and thank goodness there are people like him making movies because they're interesting they you know they get you talking and you know he he's not afraid to sort of do something that people might not agree with so just remains to say thank you very much Ruth Bradley and Jane Douglas Jones for joining us today thank you so much for having me and tell us once more where we can find your blog Jane um I'm over at 500daysoffilm.com or you can find me at uh, on twitter at 500daysoffilm okay and I'm Philip Sharman. When I'm not doing this, you can listen to me on the Wikishuffle podcast, which is out every Tuesday um, at wikishuffle.co.uk or on the Twitter at wikishufflepod. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. We're back again next week. You pick a film, we talk about it simple. <laughs>
<laughs> I forgot to say goodbye. I just sat there in a dreamlike state, like, oh, oh what am I going to do next? <laughs> and then I realised I just ignored you. So sorry about that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.